Well, uh, some time ago, they wanted to start a new Bible college. Uh, They wanted to train uh, Christian ministers. Um, And so they started a new college. The motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesia, which I don't speak Latin, but uh, probably got just enough to be able to work out that means it's truth for Christ and the church. That was their motto. And their foundation charter said this. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know Jesus Christ and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Do you know what Bible college that was? Harvard University. Isn't that extraordinary? That's what they began as. They started off as a theological college to train Christian ministers, and that was their motto, for Christ and the church. But how far have they drifted from that uh, original ambition now? Uh, Wonderful, uh, very highly regarded academic institution, isn't it? Harvard, but you wouldn't think of it as a Bible college. And that's an example of what you might call, and what has been called, mission drift. How often do people start off with a mission? But over time, they drift and end up miles away from where it was that they were originally hoping to get to. And uh, actually, quite early on in Harvard's um, uh, history, it started in the 17th century, but less than 100 years after Harvard was founded, several of the uh, clergymen there were concerned about this mission drift. So what they said is, right, we've drifted too far. We need to start a new college which is going to stay true to that original gospel conviction and stay on mission. And so what they did, they moved 100 miles south. Uh, They established a new Bible college that wasn't going to waver from the gospel. And uh, it was all funded by uh, a man named Elihu Yale. And they named it Yale University. But the same thing happened. Isn't it extraordinary to think? Would you think that Harvard and Yale are known for their gospel mission? No. And it's so easy for institutions, for churches, and for us as individuals, actually, over time, to drift. To start off on a mission, but... Uh, to, to just drift away, a bit like if you take the pan off the heat, it'll go cold. And institutions do that, and churches do that, and individuals do that when they drift from the gospel. And it's an interesting question to ask of us uh, here this morning. Here we are at St. Michael's. We're here in this wonderful building, which has been, we don't know how long it's been here, a thousand years, something like that, from when they first put a church here. It'd be an interesting question to ask, wouldn't it? When they first said, right, we need a church in Melksham, what was their mission? Why did they actually put this church here? And If we could go back and ask them, and they could see us here today, would they say, ah, yes, they're bang on track with why we originally wanted them to be here? Or would they say, they've drifted of us today? Great question to ask. And in order to find out the answer, what we've got to do is go back to the beginning. But not back to the beginning of a thousand years ago when this church was established, but 2,000 years ago to when the Church of Christ was established. That's what's happening in this chapter. As we begin 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what Paul is writing to this church in Corinth is saying you've drifted. You need to go back to your original foundation charter. Look at verse 1. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Why has he got to remind them? Presumably they're in danger of forgetting. I've got to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you. And remember you received it and on which you have taken your stand. Well, it's only by that gospel that you're saved, if you hold firmly 
Presumably there was a danger of not holding firmly to it and of just letting it drift away. But you've got to hold firmly to that word I preached to you. Otherwise, well, he says, you've believed in vain. Paul was the one who started this church. We're, we're looking these next few weeks at Corinthians. Well, Corinth, anyway, I've never been to Greece. Anyone been to Greece? Corinth is in Greece. Uh, if you look on a map, it's kind of, you can see there's a map actually on the back page of this Bible and you can see Corinth is sort of near Athens. And Paul had been on this uh, missionary journey around the Mediterranean starting churches. He'd got to Corinth in about 50 AD and he stayed there about 18 months, quite a long time really, preaching the gospel and starting this church. And now several years later, about four or five years later, they reckon, he's writing to them and saying, look, I want to take you back. Remember why we started. He wanted to remind the church of their foundations, of the gospel, which they began with. And if they needed to hear that after only four or five years of being established as a church, well, presumably we, after however long this church has been here, we've got to do the same thing and be reminded of going back to the beginning. And what Paul reminded of them, it wasn't his own gospel, which he'd come up with himself, he says in verse 3. He says, what I received, not what I concocted, what I received, I passed on to you. Paul wasn't at liberty to sort of tinker uh, with the foundations of the Christian church. We certainly aren't. And Paul received it faithfully, and he passed it on faithfully. And interestingly, what he says he actually received and passed on... The scholars reckon what he goes on to quote, a creed. Um, It was an earlier formulation of the core essentials of the Christian faith. We're going to say our creed uh, in a moment. The Apostles' Creed, we say it every week, goes all the way back to the 4th century. We say the creed. Well, the creed was really, the Apostles' Creed is an expanded upon version. of. It goes all the way back to these verses. This is the earliest form of the creed, what he goes on to quote. It could almost be in quotation marks from the middle of verse 3. See where that colon is? He says, what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance... And then here's the creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the apostles. So if we want to make sure we haven't drifted from our original mission, well, we've got to do exactly the same as the Corinthians have done and go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the creed. And Paul says we've got to be reminded of the gospel, the good news. That's what Christianity is. It's news. It's not good ideas or good advice, but good news. And here it is formulated, the earliest formulation of the gospel in the creed. What is the gospel according to Paul to the Corinthians? Four things. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared. Christ died, buried, raised, appeared. Died, buried, raised, appeared. You can imagine how in a culture before everyone could read or write, how they could pass that on. It's sort of easy to remember. Died, buried, raised, appeared. That's the gospel. Those four things. Let's say a word about each. First of all, Christ died. And what's so interesting when you think of the death of Christ, so often people say something like, well, that's your interpretation. You know, when it comes to the Bible, it's all about interpretation. The Bible needs interpreting, and that's just your interpretation. People very often say that. But the interesting thing as we read the Bible is you discover it's not just uh, actually just telling us what happened. It tells us why. Actually, the Bible is an interpretation often. It includes the, the, the thing that happened and the interpretation of why it happened. Here, the Gospel doesn't just tell us that Jesus died. It tells us why Jesus died. Why did he die? Christ died for our sins. 
That's what we've been asking on Alpha. In fact, this week, week three of Alpha, we are, the big question we asked was, why did Jesus die? Here's the answer, isn't it? Why did Jesus die? Jesus died for our sins. And it's not difficult to see why the church then and the church now actually might drift from that, isn't it? When you think about it, sin, I mean, the idea of sin and being a sinner and needing forgiveness of sins is not particularly popular or palatable idea, is it? Um, I've just been reading a book, uh, which is the prison diaries of a journalist. It's actually fascinating reading. I thought, oh, gosh, this is a guy who'd never been sort of arrested for anything from a very privileged and wealthy background, but he was caught with something he oughtn't to have and uh, spent several months as a guest of Her Majesty in the 1980s in Pentonville Prison. And I read these diaries, and let me just read to you a line, which, a paragraph which just stood out to me. It really, I thought it was so interesting, because it's getting to this heart of the fact that we don't like to admit to being a sinner. He says this, quote, No rehabilitation happens in jail, just containment. We unfortunately live in the era of the excuse. There's always somebody ready to rush in and explain why a crime was perpetrated. For those in authority and inmates as well can never admit that a crime is committed because someone is bad, greedy or malicious. Or we might add because they're a sinner. Criminals commit crimes, they say, because they're misguided, disturbed or unhappy. That's what you hear on the rare occasions when prisoners admit that a crime did actually take place. Most of the time they don't. I would guess that more than 80% of the inmates think that they were framed by the police. Extraordinary insight. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the refusal actually to accept responsibility for what we've done. And do you know, I read that and I just thought, come on. Oh, come on. You know, by the time, you know, we're all sinners, but surely by the time you got to prison and you've been convicted and given a sentence, you must go, okay, go on then, yeah, I am. I am actually a bad person. You know, I need to accept responsibility for what I've done wrong. But he says, no, actually, the human heart has the most extraordinary capacity to justify itself. And to make excuses. And if that's us, well, Jesus can't help us. The gospel can't help us because Jesus came for sinners. You know, we were seeing that in Mark's gospel, weren't we, a couple of weeks ago. All the religious people were saying, why is Jesus hanging out with all the sinners? Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, if you think you're healthy, and by the way, you're not, I can't help you because I'm a doctor. And the, sin, the sickness that I've come to cure is the sickness of sin. It's not the healthy who have need of a doctor, but the sick. And I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's because of our sins that Christ came and because of our sins that Christ died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. We all ought to have been up on that cross. But Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, as Trevor read, I mean, the most extraordinary explanation of what happened. Why did Christ die? Why was he pierced? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins, the punishment that brought us. Peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. We all, if we'll admit it to ourselves, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. If we'll let him take our sins on the cross, that's why Jesus died. Amazing. And then the second thing is he was buried. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. Well, why has that got to be in the creed, the burial? Seems a bit incidental, doesn't it? 
Well, we were speculating on Tuesday night at Alpha. Well, maybe, I mean, from time to time, people have suggested maybe Jesus never actually really died. And every so often people say, well, maybe um, what actually happened, they took him down from the cross. He wasn't actually completely dead. They laid him in the tomb. And then in the cool of the tomb, he sort of revived. And so it wasn't so much a, a resurrection as a resuscitation. It's quite a nice theory, actually. Maybe that would explain it. You know what I always think about that is, imagine what kind of a state Jesus must have been in on Easter morning if that had actually happened. Imagine he's been crucified, he's been hung up there on a cross, then he's been stabbed in the side so that water and blood flowed out of his side, and then they broke both of his legs, the Roman guards did, and then they put him in the tomb, and then he hasn't had anything to eat or drink for three days. Can you imagine on Easter Sunday morning, if he'd managed to roll the stone, I mean, if, he wouldn't have been able to roll the stone away, would he? But just supposing he, he, he was able to, miracle of miracles. Imagine when they found him on Easter Sunday morning, they wouldn't have gone, oh, wow, you must be the resurrected Lord of the universe. You must be God. You must be the Son of God. We're going to worship you as having risen from the grave triumphantly. They would have gone, oh, my word, we've got to get you to a doctor. They would never have happened like that. So, so Paul says, no, he was dead, he was dead and buried. He really, really was dead. He was just as dead and buried as the folk out in the churchyard or across the road in the cemetery. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to people to prove it. Now, people say often, you you know, you can't prove Christianity. You can't prove uh, the resurrection. And well, no, you can't prove it in the sense that you can prove a mathematical equation two plus two equals four you can't prove anything from history you like you can prove that all you can do when it comes to finding out whether something happened in the past or not is do what every court has always done and weighed up the evidence and see if it's beyond reasonable doubt and to do that you need what every judge and jury has always needed at witnesses and paul says look at the witnesses uh verse five he appeared to cephas that's peter the footnote tells us And then to the 12 apostles, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all to me as well. Here's all the witnesses, Paul says. How persuasive were they? How good were these witnesses? Well, we can hardly go and interrogate them now, can we? But they could then, the Corinthians could in 55 AD, they could go and ask these witnesses. Paul says, verse 6, Most of them are still living, not just some of them are still around, but most of these hundreds of people, by the time Paul wrote this letter, there's all these people who said, I saw him. Paul's almost inviting them, isn't he? He said, go and talk to them. If you 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 want to know whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead, you can go and ask the witnesses. Speaking personally, for me, the most persuasive reason, why do I believe that Christianity is true? Why do I believe the resurrection really happened? Personally, it's because of the witness of the apostles, the testimony of the witnesses. It's an extraordinary thing to just think, to put yourself in the shoes of the apostles, who they saw Jesus die with their own eyes. They saw his legs broken, they saw him stabbed in the side, they saw him put in the tomb. And what did they do? Peter and all the rest of them ran away. They were disillusioned, dejected, scared. They thought they're going to kill us next. Peter even denied knowing it. I don't even know him. They went from being these incredibly cowardly and dejected bunch of ex-disciples who thought, gosh, we backed the wrong horse, we thought Jesus was a Messiah, he clearly can't be because now he's dead and we must have got the whole of the last three years completely wrong. 
But then they became this powerhouse going all the way around the Mediterranean, telling everybody who would listen that Jesus was risen from the dead, even willing, think of Peter, denied Jesus, but then he was willing to die for his belief. Most extraordinary transformation. To me, that's the most powerful and persuasive reason to believe the truth of Christianity. As Chuck Colson puts it, who Chuck Colson worked for Richard Nixon, and he went to prison for his part in the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. And Chuck Colson became a Christian and devoted the rest of his life after he got out of prison to prison ministry and telling people about Jesus. He said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They wouldn't have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again, and he appeared to the witnesses. If the church is ever drifting from its mission, we've got to go back to that original foundation charter, to the beginning, to the creed, to the gospel. It's so tempting, isn't it, to just sort of drift away from it, to downplay it, as it was in Paul's day, just as much as it is now. I think of the Bishop of Durham from a few years ago, do you remember, who famously denied, or possibly, we're not sure whether he really even believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And he famously compared the resurrection to like a conjuring trick with bones. Well, I don't know whether he believed the resurrection or not, but apparently many Christians, those who say they're Christians, don't actually believe that Jesus actually was dead and rose again, literally, physically, from the grave. According to one recent poll from the BBC, 25% of Christians don't actually believe that Jesus rose actually from the dead. I wonder whether we do this morning. Alison said that she was asked when she was going for ordination, one of the questions they asked her at her interview was, if they found the bones of Jesus... What would that do for your faith? And there are many, I don't know how we feel about that. I mean, I suppose there are many for whom it wouldn't make that much of a difference, to be honest, because, well, it's not really about actually, we don't believe he really rose from the dead. They found the bones of Jesus. Well, it's more about a spiritual thing. But actually, look at what Paul says in verse 2. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, these are strong words, aren't they? You've believed in vain. And he goes on, this is what we'll hear next week, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, in other words, if they found the bones of Jesus, our preaching is useless, so is your faith. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, they've never been forgiven. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ are lost. That's a depressing thought, isn't it? If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied, he says. Look at us. If this gospel isn't true, look at us Christians here. What a pitiful bunch. What are we doing here on a Sunday morning? But if it's true, it changes everything, doesn't it? If he really rose from the dead, doesn't that change everything? If Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose and appeared as we come into land. On Thursday, we had a funeral here. It was the first burial over in the cemetery since um, I've moved to Melksham. And so we had the service in here, and then we walked uh, over the road to the cemetery, which, by the way, in Latin means dormitory. 
cemetery is a dormitory. It's where people go to sleep, actually, if you're a Christian. It's not a place where people die. It's where they're only asleep because one day, if you're a Christian, you'll wake up. That's what Paul says in verse 6, isn't it? More than 500 of the brothers and sisters are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They haven't died if they're Christians. They're only asleep because they're in a dormitory. And we went over there and they dug a big hole in the ground. I mean, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But when you actually see a hole that a body's going to go into, in the ground, in the earth, dug a hole. And we lowered the body into the earth. And I said these words in the service, we now commit the body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Sure and certain hope. Not the vague and flimsy hope. The sure and certain hope that this body which is going into the ground will one day come out of it again. Later on that afternoon, in fact, immediately after the service, I got changed. I had to go to the tip or to the, uh, the household waste recycling centre over at Bow Hill. And because we need to get rid of a... There was a, a bed frame which some fly tippers had kindly... Uh, donated to us and dumped on our drive and so I popped the bed in the in the car and drove down to uh, the tip and it had to go in residual waste you know when you think oh can it be recycled no it can't be recycled it's got to go in residual waste which means it's going in landfill sadly and it just struck me that that afternoon two things were going into the ground and if we're not a Christian If we don't actually believe the gospel, if this creed is not true, if we don't believe that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised, then actually, what's the difference between the two? That body, like that bed frame, will go into the ground and there it will remain. But if this is true, that changes absolutely everything. If Christ was died, buried, rose and appeared nothing could be more central to our purpose let's never drift from that that's absolutely critical to our mission to do what these guys needed to do go back to verse one be reminded of it have it preached to us preach it to others probably receive it take a stand on it verse two hold firmly to it be saved by it Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's the most extraordinary thing to believe. We can hardly believe it. When we see a body go into the ground, we think, can it really be true that Jesus Christ, your body, went into the ground and then came out again, dead and buried, but rose again? Would you give us faith? Faith to believe this is true. and Faith to believe that those of us who are willing to have our sins dealt with by you, the sin that leads to death and for which we all deserve to die, that you've paid the price, taken the penalty of sin so that we might have eternal life. Help us to be so grateful and help us to be filled with hope as we live the rest of this earthly life, knowing that death is only sleeping and a cemetery is only a dormitory. And one day, with you, we will rise. Help us to believe this. For the good of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.